the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This afternoon, we're starting a new teaching series entitled Identity. On the teaching program card for this term, you'll find a short paragraph describing the purpose behind this series and some of the key areas that we will be exploring over the next six weeks. This is what the teaching card says. John Stott, in his book Issues Facing Christians Today, reminds his readers that every generation of Christians face the same unique challenge, to live in the world under the word. The society that surrounds us constantly presents new challenges for us as Christians. How are we to live wisely and well when faced with worldviews that appear to run contrary to the teachings of Scripture? In this series, we'll be exploring some of the most pressing contemporary political, social and moral challenges facing us today. We will be looking at attitudes to money and possessions, contentment, relativism, morality and justice. And the titles for this series have come from a short book written by Vaughan Roberts, the Vicar of St Ebbs in Oxford, a book called Distinctives. And if you're interested in thinking a little more about some of the issues that we'll be touching on during the next few weeks, then Roberts' book is a great place to start. Another more recent book that I would recommend is by Sam Wells, who is on the staff at St Martin's in the Fields in central London. He's co-founder of Heart Edge. It's a book called How Then Shall We Live? Christian engagement with contemporary issues. However, I'm sure that other speakers uh, during this series will have other additional titles you may wish to consider looking at as we just follow this series through. So the series as a whole looks like this. Uh, the first part, which is today, perspective in a world that lives for the moment. A few verses from Paul's letter to Titus. And then service in a world that looks after number one, and then contentment in a world that never has enough, certainty in a world in which everything is relative, morality in a world where anything goes, and then finally, lastly, wholeheartedness in a world that can't be bothered. Those are the titles, and you can find uh, the Bible references on the teaching card. So let's think a little more about our subject for this afternoon. In a little while, we'll be reading together a few verses from Paul's pastoral epistle to his friend and mission partner, Titus. But before we get there, I'd like us to spend a few moments thinking about how our lives are shaped by our current obsession with immediacy, which is one aspect of the persuasive intrusion of the here and now. At the start of his book, Vaughan Roberts recounts the story of walking up the highest mountain in Wales, Mount Snowdon. And he was walking alongside his sister. This is what he writes. We were approaching a cliff that offered some spectacular views, but they were lost on her because she was scared, really scared. She insisted on fixing her gaze on the ground immediately in front of her and refused to look up. She was reduced to a pathetic shuffle that not only limited her enjoyment of the walk, but also most certainly increased the danger. And that story, says Roberts, illustrates part of the malaise experienced by modern humanity, which has become so fixated with the immediacy of the moment that there is little or no consideration given to the past or to the future. And that preoccupation with the here and now is the outworking of a societal mindset which is dominated by the material world. And whilst as Christians we believe there is more to life than the immediacy of our situation, we can find ourselves being unduly influenced by the expected norms of the culture we inhabit. 
The danger is that we, we live our lives limited to one perspective, blinkered to the possibilities that life with Christ offers, reduced, using the words of Roberts, to a pathetic shuffle. Over the past few years, there have been several studies carried out looking at what effects our preoccupation with the immediate is having upon our well-being. Much has been written about how several of the commonplace activities that we engage in both affect our mood and alter our perspective and behaviour. Now at school I stuck to a particularly singular scientific track in my studies, choosing to study physics and resisting any encouragement for my teachers to consider chemistry or biology. So you're going to have to forgive me for what is probably a simplistic approach to explaining the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine is a, a chemical released by our brains that allows us to feel pleasure, satisfaction and motivation. When we feel good after having achieved something, it's because we have experienced a surge of dopamine in our brains. But, as with almost everything, of course, in life, it's important that these surges of dopamine are regulated. If they aren't, then we're in danger of being trapped in what is most often referred to as the instant gratification loop. Dopamine's release in the brain is both highly rewarding and incredibly fleeting, which makes it both wonderful and problematic. The odd thing about dopamine is that the high of excitement we feel just before we actually do something we like doing is often the peak of its release. After that, it's downhill all the way. And in response to that inevitable low, we become tempted to head back for yet another quick hitting high. The problem, of course, is that it's possible to be so unaware of this self-sustaining loop that we keep going back for more and more and more without question. Take social media, for instance. It's designed to keep us locked into a cycle of quick highs and constant engagement. And the more often the brain receives these shallow dopamine hits, the more often it craves them. Chamath Palia Pitya, who is the former vice president of the social media platform Facebook, in an article written for the Washington Post a while ago, summed up the problem very succinctly. This is what he writes. We curate our lives around a perceived sense of perfection because we get rewarded in these short-term signals, hearts, likes, thumbs up. And we conflate that with value. We conflate it with truth. Instead, what it is, is fake. Brittle popularity that short term leaves you even more vacant and empty than before you did it. And there's also a physical logical problem because increases in dopamine, these constant and consistent hits and spikes, result in the depletion of the number of dopamine receptors in the brain. Ed Halliwell, who is a writer um, on the current trend of mindfulness, writes this. In our bid to escape listlessness and dissatisfaction, our lives end up becoming shallower, more frantic and more desperate. We live in a world where being constrained to the immediate is so often championed as being the only way to live. Food apps, digital assistance, next day delivery, social media, instant messaging, smartphones and so many other valuable commonplace tools, whilst incredibly helpful of course on one level, have the capacity to be misused. And the problem of course isn't that things like social media exist. The problem is that time is our only non-renewable resource. 
And when we immerse ourselves in these kinds of fleeting gratifications too often, it's then that we become distracted from focusing on the things that really matter. It's then that we have become blinkered and one-dimensional. It's then that we run the risk of only looking down, which, if left unchecked, can lead to our walk with Christ becoming a pathetic shuffle. Which brings us to the passage from Paul's letter to his friend and colleague, Titus. Now, just a little bit of background. Right at the start of the letter, Paul identifies himself as the author of the letter, but the origin of Paul's relationship with Titus is something of a mystery. Most commentators assume that, rather like Timothy, Titus came to faith through Paul's ministry. We know that Titus accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey, during which time the apostle sent him to Corinth at least once, because we read about that in Paul's second letter to his friends in Corinth. We know, too, that Paul accompanied Titus to the island of Crete, where they together established a worshipping community. The letter that bears Titus's name was penned by Paul some years later and is sent to encourage him in the continuing work of leading the church on that same island. And as this series aims to tackle, the call to live as whole life disciples is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines life very differently. Now it's very clear from the quotation that Paul cites from the Cretan philosopher Epimendes in chapter 1 that here was a society that was probably not too dissimilar to 21st century Western culture. Listen to these words. This is uh, Titus 1 verse 13. Paul says, One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So Titus's challenge was one of building a worshipping community that reflected the manifesto of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and not the norms of the society that surrounded it, a society marked by dishonesty, harshness and selfishness. And whilst we don't have time to look at the letter in its entirety this afternoon, I would recommend that you take a few moments this week to read it, just to read it all the way through. It's, it's not very long. It won't take you very long. And it's the doctrine of the incarnation that provides the framework for Paul's message to Titus, which makes it particularly appropriate that we're looking at this passage just after Christmas. Within the letter, there are three summaries of the incarnation, one in each chapter, Titus 1, 1 to 4, Titus 2, 11 to 14, and Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. And it's the middle one that we're going to read together in a few moments. The main thrust of Paul's argument is that right living only happens when we pay close attention to right doctrine. And the evidence of that is seen in what he describes as good deeds, since they are the product of transformed lives. In order to gain a proper perspective on how we live in the here and now, Paul stresses the importance of looking upwards and backwards and forwards. We need to have in view all aspects of Christ's appearance, as the period of Advent has reminded us. We need to have a clear perspective, not with our eyes narrowly fixed on the ground, but instead lifting our eyes to see God's work in the past and the present and the future, which Paul talks about in terms of God's grace and God's glory. So let's read, shall we, a few verses from chapter 2 of Paul's letter to Titus. We're going to read from verse 11 to verse 14. So this is what Paul says. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In the preceding uh, verses in chapter 2, Paul has given Titus some very specific instructions for him to pass on to those at various ages and stages within the church community. So the word for at the start of this section provides the, the reason why the instructions he has given should be followed. And the reason is a profound one. It's because of God's grace. It's a mark of how we respond to God's unmerited favour. It would appear from what Paul writes that the grace of God reframes our perspective such that rather than simply viewing ourselves, we are called to look in three dimensions in order to gain a better understanding of who we are in Christ. So firstly, we are to look upward. Uh, That is 2 verse 13. We are to look upward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are to look backward to see the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And then thirdly, we are to look forward as we wait for the blessed hope. So upward to the glorious God who gave himself for us and will one day unite us to himself. Backward to the sacrifice Christ made for us and forward towards not only how he is transforming us in the here and now, but also towards what he has in store for us in the future. And it's this upward, backward, forward vision of the gospel that will, says Paul, produce godliness in us. The Scottish clergyman James Durham, writing in the mid-15th century, described godliness like this. It is, he says, an inner response to the things of God which show itself in devoted reverence for God. It shapes our attitudes, words and actions. But how does having a clearer perspective of God's grace and glory lead us to godliness? Well, let's just think about it a little more. We'll think about those three directions. Firstly, upward. The gospel redirects our worship. The problem of brokenness in sin in our lives is at its very core a problem of misdirected worship. Paul writes to his friends in Rome towards the end of the first chapter and he says this. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kabod, which means weight or importance. So one way of defining sinfulness is to view it as the giving of the weight and importance that we're supposed to give to God to something else within creation, whatever that may be. The New Testament Greek word for glory encompasses the idea of beauty. So if we put those two things together, we end up with a pretty good definition of sin as misdirected worship. What are the things that grab our attention? What are the things we prioritise over God? Where do we seek to find purpose? How do we measure our worth? Where is beauty found? Matt Papa, in his book Look and Live says this, We never begin to worship. We are born worshippers, but like breathing, we just aim it somewhere. 
And I'm quite sure that many people have a list of things that they deem to be essential to life and happiness. In order to try to secure them, they then arrange, of course, their lives to match up with those objectives. And whilst in principle there may be very little harm in that kind of ambition, there's the possibility that in acting that way we may find ourselves misdirecting our worship. The work of the Spirit is to transform us from the inside, to change our focus and direction at our heart level, to change what we worship. Until that happens, all changes are pretty much superficial. The good news of the gospel isn't the announcement of a good intention, it's the transformative power of God redirecting our worship so that we might reflect his glory. Secondly then, backward. The gospel restores gratefulness. In the same section of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Paul identifies a second component that directly links to this idea of misdirected worship. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. Thanklessness, says Paul, is a prime indication of misdirected worship. When we are thankless, not only do we rob someone of the weight that belongs to them, we also convince ourselves that we could easily have managed without them. Using an example from the academic world, think of it uh, like plagiarism. The University of Oxford defines plagiarism like this. It's presenting someone else's work or ideas as your own, with or without their consent, by incorporating it into your work without full acknowledgement. Or published and unpublished material, whether in manuscript, printed or electronic form, is covered under this definition. Plagiarism may be intentional or reckless or unintentional. Under the regulations for examinations, intentional or reckless plagiarism is a disciplinary offence. And plagiarism, when you think about it, is harmful on two levels. Firstly, you rob someone else of credit for their words, and secondly, you delude others and yourself into thinking that you can come up to that level of idea all the time. When we are thankless towards God, not only do we rob God of the glory that belongs to him, we delude ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient. We forget that every breath we have come from God. Every blessing on earth is a gift that comes from his hand. A spirit of thankfulness has very little to do with politeness. Instead, it is life-giving. Tim Keller, in his book about prayer, awe and intimacy with God, says this. We are like the moon. The light shining out of our lives is reflected light, borrowed light from the sun. Move the sun and we go dark. And that lack of gratefulness, that self-sufficiency, leads to independence, which leads to more sin. So that's something about looking upwards and looking backwards. Now, lastly, we need to look at uh, looking forward. There we discover that the gospel raises expectations. The gospel allows us to, to catch a glimpse of what God is making us and the future he has for us. God instills in us a hunger, a hunger for it, a desire to be like Christ in our attitudes and actions in the here and now. And an anticipation for what is to come that allows us to move forward with him, to stop looking down, trapped in fruitless and ultimately damaging patterns of behaviour, and instead to, to walk with him as his disciples. In his first letter, John, the writer of the fourth gospel, writes these words. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him 
purify themselves just as he is pure. In the light of all of this, Paul encourages us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this age. That's what it says in the centre of that uh, few verses from Titus. The people of Crete, as we thought earlier, were characterised as those who didn't control their speech, their emotions or their appetites. We similarly live in a culture that values self-expression over self-control, self-fulfilment over self-denial, independence over submission. Which means that as Christians, we will almost always be swimming against the tide of culture. But our identity as those who follow Christ is a calling to be distinct. We're called to be salt and light, to add flavour to the blandness of what the world has to offer and to illuminate and reveal truth through what being good reflectors of God's glory means. So let's not simply look down. Let's not become so immersed in the quick dopamine highs on offer such that we miss out on what God has to offer us through Christ. Let's resist seeing life in the blandness of a single dimension. But instead, let's look upwards, backwards and forwards in hopeful expectation of all that God wants to do through us and in us. To close, I'd like to finish with a few words from Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones, the the long-serving minister of Westminster Chapel in London. Writing on this passage, he says this, It is grace at the beginning, it is grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not that we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace Wonderful grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for all that you have done for us through Christ. And we pray that we will continue to look upwards to you, to remember who you are, that we will look back to be reminded of what you have done for us through Christ, through his death and resurrection that we will look forward as well in expectation that one day we will be with him. And in the meantime, as we look up and back and forward, let us live in the present in such a way that we reflect something of your glory to the world. Help us, we pray, to be those who are salt and light, bringing distinctive flavour and illumination to those who as yet don't know your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray. In your name. Amen.